Hello everyone, welcome back to Freedom Talks. I'm your host, Brady Ament, and today uh, I am pleased to meet with and talk to Dr. Alejandro Badia. Uh, he is an internationally recognized American orthopedic surgeon, author, and entrepreneur. He was a founder of the Surgery Center at Doral, the Miami Anatomical Research Center, the Badia Hand to Shoulder Center, and OrthoNow, a chain of walk-in orthopedic centers. And he is also the author of Healthcare from the Trenches, an insider account of the complex barriers of the U.S. healthcare from the providers and the patient's perspective. Dr. Badia, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Good. I'm, I'm pleased to have you on. I'm really excited. Uh, you obviously have um, a, a long, long resume uh, and have been kind of in every single facet of healthcare from uh, actual clinician to uh, investor and entrepreneur and management positions in hospitals. So I'm really excited to get your takes on what's going on in healthcare and uh, how can we how we can improve our situation here in the U- U.S. healthcare system. Um, so I guess let's to get started. Let's just uh, get to know uh, a little bit of your uh, path into healthcare uh, and your background. How did you become a hand surgeon, and then kind of what led you up to the point of, of writing your book and and developing a lot of these philosophies that uh, you have over the years? With pleasure. I'm a, a proud immigrant. I was born in Cuba, and have a long lineage of physicians from my family in that side and my mother's side of the family from Cuba. My father's from Spain, and I settled in New Jersey, a public school kid. I was fortunate enough to attend uh, Cornell University. I was pre-med really since I was about eight years old. So to to give you an idea, uh, without spoiling it for the book, I talk about this at length because I think it's important for people to understand the trajectory and and what it takes to to become a a physician, a a surgeon in my case. Uh, But when I was eight years old, I did go with my grandmother who had debilitating rheumatoid arthritis see a hand surgeon, believe it or not, in New York. Uh, later, many years later, I realized there was only two hand surgeons. It was a burgeoning specialty. And it turned out that the one I saw, Bob Carroll, was uh, someone who trained the person who ultimately trained me in Pittsburgh. So uh, I, I have a kind of a, a lineage of hand surgeons here as well. And settled in Miami 25 years ago when Miami wasn't quite as popular as it is now. Uh, I trained in New York, and I think half of New York is moving down here. Uh, A lot of uh, great things in Miami, and one of them is that I've been able to develop a very international practice because Miami is seen as a gateway to Latin America and the Caribbean, and even even, uh, our Canadian friends. So for this hemisphere, Miami is a really central place, and a lot of my practice has evolved to seeing uh, international patients, and even patients from other parts of the United States who want a second opinion, and uh, also who want a one-stop shopping experience, meaning that uh, they come in, uh, I examine them, I can do whether it be x-ray, ultrasound, MRI imaging, all in, in, in this office, essentially. Uh, there's a surgery center down the hall and then there's a, a physical therapy center down the other hall. So it, it's, it's a pretty unique outpatient experience and the pandemic has showed the, the world really that outpatient care is really uh, not only cost-effective and less cumbersome, but uh, much safer, frankly. And uh, that's been uh, uh, interesting for us. And I, I know we'll talk a bit about ortho now, but that, is, um, that has been uh, um, interesting and, and a challenge at the same time. 
and so kind of leading into this book and kind of leading into uh, kind of why you wrote the book and, and why you started the Ortho Now Clinics, uh, you've kind of had a lot of leadership positions and have kind of become an entrepreneur uh, and an investor in a lot of these um, centers for surgery and uh, your hand to shoulder center and things like that. You've held positions like chief, chief of surgery, that kind of thing. Um, how did all of those, I guess, give you the perspective that you have now? And then what what about those positions kind of um, gave you the the really the the drive to create these services for for patients well i, I would say the number one reason is really frustration that's that's often the, the the uh necessity and frustration is often the mother of invention and in my case i will tell you that i was tired of seeing patients uh, as as a hand surgeon as an upper limb specialist that had already been to three or four places and none of those clinicians really was able to do something for them. And, and it's not their fault. It's sort of like you coming to me with an eye problem. Yes, yes, and I'm in an MD. I've had some exposure to ophthalmology, but I really don't know a lot about the eye. <laughs> and, and that's the way we treated musculoskeletal problems is the, uh, the medical system, whether it be the insurer, and even the public has assumed that going maybe to their primary doctor or their general urgent care center, or even the emergency room is a good place to go when you have you know, shoulder pain or knee pain or you, or you sprained your ankle, uh, that's usually just a first stop. And I developed ortho now because there was such a, a rash of urgent care centers popping up around the country that I realized that it, there certainly they were convenient. I think they continue to be a very good idea, um, serve an important niche, but when it comes to orthopedic issues, it really just adds a step in the process many times for that patient. And the insurance carrier, which is puzzling to me that the insurance companies haven't come to us and say, <laughs> hey, we would like, because, uh, and, and that shed light on the system. So my, my um, so, so once I started OrthoNow out of frustration with, with how patients came to me, I then wrote the book essentially 10 years later during lockdown, that's really what I did. I, you know, there wasn't a lot of Netflix binging for me. I, I really binged uh, at a computer for, I would say, 12 hours a day for a good five to six weeks. And I, I wrote 80% of the book uh, during the lockdown, starting in mid-March. And the book talks about uh, really all of the hurdles and barriers to providing care. And I realized that even innovation in, in delivering a better system was not embraced by our healthcare system. Uh, and, and, many, and sometimes even by our, our society as a whole, even the public, it's very difficult. So I realized that when I started Ortho Now, I thought this would be a slam dunk. It makes so much sense, but it makes sense on an individual basis. So whether it be speaking to you, Brady, or your, or your listeners, they, it makes sense. But when you speak to an entity, whether it be you know Blue Cross or a big hospital system or my local municipality, even my, the local, you know, even my kid's school, the, the previous one they were at, didn't get it. They didn't seem to understand that if the kid sprains an ankle on a soccer field, why should they go to a hospital for one? Why should they go to a general urgent care when they'll say, well, it's a sprain, but they're not going to know if it's a grade one, two, or three, if there's a physio growth plate fracture. I mean, these, 
the, the complexities are not being solved. And the fact that ortho now was so difficult to get engagement told me that there's a real problem with our system. And that's what inspired me to write the book. And uh, yeah, pretty soon in two months, it'll be, uh, it'll be a year that it was released. So I have a question. You mentioned insurance and, and entities in general. Um, and, and we run into that same issue with insurance companies. And in some states, uh, for PT, there's direct access laws. Some, some states there's not. Uh, and for our listeners, that essentially means that in the states that have direct access, you can go to a physical therapist first. Um, and, and they can um, do an evaluation on you. And, and especially if it's an orthopedic injury, generally the outcome of that is, uh, you know, reduced visits to, like you said, your, your general outpatient clinic, your urgent care center, where all they're going to say is, well, you should have gone to PT or you should have gone to this person. Um, and it saves a visit, but what is, what is still happening is insurance companies still give us issues about, well, you, you didn't go to your urgent care. We, we need a script from your primary care doctor, which normally the primary care doctors are excellent. And we just fax them over the script and or fax them over what we need. And they're generally very good. But the insurance companies still seem to be dragging their feet um, on changes like this. Is there a reason? And all the studies show, too, that it's reducing costs by by having direct access. So in a similar fashion, why don't you think uh, insurance companies and different entities are embracing your system? Well, a couple of reasons. One is you have to understand you're speaking to salaried employees who you know generally work nine to five and they're not really incentivized to be different. Now, if I, if I could have a word with the CEO uh, who, you know, for United Healthcare, I know made 32 million, I think last year. So <laughs> the incentives just aren't there. And I, I'm not criticizing them because listen, I, I said at the beginning, I, my family and I fled Cuba. So I am a capitalist, okay? <laughs> and, I, and I think, and, and if all these insurance companies provide, you know, uh, well, remember they don't provide care. So it's important, I wanna catch myself. If, if they uh, reimburse care and facilitate the delivery of care while they're collecting their premiums, that I'm fine with that. I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not want, I don't want a nationalized healthcare system that is not gonna be efficient, okay? I don't want the government in charge of all of my health care or my patients. But the problem is that they're not really incentivized. And in my book, I talk about how the reality is that they have to, um, uh, there are uh, there's legislation that says they have to provide, uh, I think it's 85% of their revenue has to be on provided care, which means if they, if the care is too, too inexpensive, then, then they're in trouble because they, they would have trouble meeting that 85%, right? Because they have, uh, you know, I think United Healthcare has 200 and something thousand employees across the country, okay? So they, they've got their own overhead issues. So they're really not incentivized to save money. So that's why our uh, healthcare costs are almost 20% of our GDP. It's twice as expensive as the next country in line, which is uh, either Switzerland or Norway depending on what you read, but those are countries with, you know, no, you know, less than 10 million people, yep. right? So we have a very big system and it's, it's a very huge ship to turn. And I think the Suez Canal gave us an inkling <laughs> of how difficult it is to turn a ship. And, and that's why it's gonna have to come from the private sector with innovation, 
would, would ortho now being one humble, small example of that, and other things that we're going to see from the private sector, and hopefully our, our legislators will take note. And th this is the advice given to me by uh, Senator uh, uh, Cassidy from Louisiana, who's a physician and one of three senators uh, in, in, uh, in the Senate. Uh, I believe there's uh, uh, 12 congressmen. Um, and the advice he gave me is really prove it out in the private sector, and then hopefully legislation will follow. So the goal being is that we need to make care more efficient so that what you mentioned, that it obviously makes sense for if somebody is having knee pain and they're able to go to a physical therapist, at least get a, a screening evaluation, uh, that makes a lot more sense than their, their overburdened primary care doctor who really should be uh, overseeing our global health and mostly managing chronic uh, illness, uh, not taking care of episodic uh, or acute problems. Uh, severe ones should go to an emergency room, and I mean really severe, right? Hip fracture, femur fracture, spinal, spinal cord injury, but most other things can go to an orthopedic walk-in center, and much like the challenge you've seen with, your, with therapy centers, they should be able to go um, there immediately, and it should be rewarded by the insurance company, and it's just a matter of crossing that divide. There is a huge um, uh, barrier between the clinicians and the insurance industry. And that's got to change. We should be working together because they're necessary and, and we're certainly necessary. So I'm hoping that the book at least inspires some uh, dialogue. And, and so if we're boiling it down when we're talking about what are the, the, biggest, uh, the biggest barriers that are keeping costs high, um, are we specifically talking about only the insurance and uh, clinician relationship um, or the, you know, the, the clinician or the insurance uh, patient relationship, or is it also other factors involved as well? Well, let, let's make it simpler. Our system um, has become obsessed with basically middlemen. Okay. There, there are way too many middle people and, and those people, you know, that, that's their jobs. So you can't blame them. Uh, but let's face it, they have a salary and benefits that have to be paid for. Um, there's a lot that can be done so that many of these people can be uh, kind of retooled to facilitate care rather than being barriers. I, 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 I speak about this in a book as well. Uh, the word authorization is actually a four letter word. So to, to, to most clinicians, whether it be a therapist, uh, a, a nurse practitioner or a physician. Yep. Uh, and that's in uh, my chapter on insurance. So authorization is a four letter word. I, I believe that we need oversight. Why? Because we're humans and people uh, are either nefarious or they, they may be um, uh, neglectful and they may overutilize. So I have no problem that the insurance company needs to make sure that the dollars are being used wisely. But to put an impediment at every step of the way, all that does is delay care and drive up cost. And I think both of those factors need to be changed. It should be easier for your kid to have their ankle sprain seen by somebody who really knows a lot about the ankle, all right? And it shouldn't need um, a, a bunch of uh, uh, authorization numbers e each step of the way. Uh, that alone will, will, will take a lot of money out of the system. And then we could have oversight. So if you know uh, every other Johnny who sprains his ankle is getting surgery, 
by a particular foot and ankle specialist, then maybe, you know, the, the insurance company who has trained people, not, not people who don't know medicine, but people who know, can, can see that and say, you know, why is Dr. Uh, you know, X uh, operating a lot of these routine ankle springs? That's not a usual scenario. Because of course, we, we do need to, we need to control costs. But there is no reason why you should take well-trained ethical people who, um, who have spent a lot of years in school and training and, and, and put barriers in their way. By people who, who have very little knowledge about that clinical material compared to the, the person delivering the care. It, it makes no sense. And so uh, back to when you mentioned uh, talking to the, the senators and, and the people in Congress, um, they had told you that you're going to have to prove it out in the private sector. Um, yeah. And with that, um, I'm assuming it's going to take a little bit of sway in the public opinion um, that this is going to be the right thing to do. So for those that are uh, agree with you and, and want to be a part of the change, um, I guess, what is the responsibility to uh, the average patient uh to help change uh, the system and, and keep healthcare costs lower? Well, I think the, the main thing is, is understand what the problems are currently. You can't, you can't provide a solution or suggest one unless you know where the pain points are. So the book was not written to be a solution. I wish I knew, I wish I was that smart. <laughs> I do provide myself and there are 27 contributors to the book. So myself and um, I would say ooh, at least eight or 10 of the, uh, of, of the, the folks in the last chapter, uh, humbly present some, some potential options. And I, I don't want to, on that I'm not going to give away. You have to read it. Fair but the, the focus of the book, uh, to answer your question, what can the public do, is understand what the problems are. Not just when you try to take little Johnny for that ankle sprain to get care. Because we know how frustrating and cumbersome that can be. But you know what? That's not an everyday occasion for you. But the people who are trying to deliver care are dealing with this problem every day. So understand what the problems are because it will affect you. It does affect the public and it's certainly affecting our economy. So my, my suggestion would be to, uh, you know, to go to Amazon and, um, and you know, download the book either on Kindle or, or, or I'm, a, I I'm a classic. I like uh, to curl up with a paperback, you know, and uh, buy a soft cover copy and uh, get informed as to what the problems are. And I have a, a pretty good uh, reference source there, so you can read some other books that, um, that, that I certainly had read to help uh, prepare for the book and understand what the problems are. And only then can we offer solutions. And it, I think if the public became as passionate about this as, say, you know, racial injustice or gender identity, uh, it amazes me still that the public goes through this all the time trying to get care and that people don't talk about it. They, it's almost like they've accepted that healthcare should be this complicated and expensive. I, I, it, it really baffles me. So hopefully we can get a grassroots uh, effort uh, on social media, um, in, in the popular media even, talking about that this is a problem. And then we could come up with some solutions. Uh, and it, if you had any kind of idea, uh, and, and maybe it would be hard to give this answer, but uh, is this going to be a change that's going to occur in the next 10 years? Or are we looking at something that's probably going to be over the next 30 years? I mean, society changes slow, unfortunately. Well, you know, you say that, but look, look at the, uh, 
I, I believe there's a silver lining to this pandemic. I mean, yes, uh, unfortunately, you know, many people have passed away. As we know, many of them are people who had comorbidities or, or, the, or the elderly or, or were dying primarily of something else, but also had COVID. So we know that affects the numbers, but there's no question this has been uh, very, very difficult for, for many families. Uh, but I will say there's a lot of good that will come out of this. Um, and I, I think that the healthcare system has been shaken up a bit. I can tell you that um, there is um, a lot of interest now in our ortho now model. So we're, we're speaking to, to, um, to, you know, to investors and, 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 and larger entities who may absorb it uh, because even outpatient centers, uh, surgery centers are, um, are, are on the upswing because people realize you don't have to go to the hospital for everything. Now that there is this pesky, pesky virus that people don't want to go to the hospital. Um, so I, I, I think that, um, I don't think it's going to be, you know, decades. Um, it's hard to put, to begin with, you have to decide what, what change are you looking for? And then you could decide what the timeline might be. Um, I, I, will, I will gleam one uh, tidbit from the book for you. Uh, many of us believe that, that health insurance companies should really be non-for-profit. So that, that means still that the people who work there can earn a good living, but they shouldn't be answering to Wall Street. That money should be reinvested in providing the care, and that will allow the care to be more, more efficient, cost-effective overall. Uh, so that's one, one chain. Now, I, I don't know, um, you know when that's gonna happen, uh, but certainly, uh, uh, I know the last administration was, was trying to increase transparency in healthcare costs. I don't know what's going to happen with the current administration, but I think that adding more, more bureaucracy to the, uh, to the uh, ACA or, or Obamacare, popularly known, I, I don't think we, we've already seen that's not saving on healthcare costs, although there's some good components to that plan, uh, but it's certainly not saving money. Is there any other countries that use that model where insurance companies are, are not for profit? I'll just tell you it's a major country in Europe. How's that? Fair, fair <laughs> enough. Buy the book, right? <laughs> you, you can see, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, look, the bottom line is that, you know, giving, um, giving listeners just little tidbits, I mean, you have to understand the genesis of, of, of a lot of these opinions. And they're from, my, you know, not, not only myself, but, 25 other people who are in the trenches of healthcare are, are, are commenting. And that's what, that's where chapter 14 comes into play is once you learn what the problems are, then we're suggesting some, some potential solutions. Okay. All right. And so I guess overall, are you optimistic about where we're going in healthcare in the U S right now, or uh, cautiously optimistic? Yeah. Cautiously optimistic would be it. it the problem is there, there isn't a lot of incentives for change. And uh, hopefully that can be changed. And yes, it may require legislation. I don't know if the government's gonna be bold enough to do that, quite frankly. Um, the problem is we, you know, we have a, a system uh, largely based on, on lobbying efforts. And um, I can tell you uh, physicians and, and therapists um, uh, and nursing profession, we're, we're not great about, about putting money into our profession. Um, and now it's going to be even harder because let's face it, a lot of us are really being squeezed. Um, you know, overhead just keeps going up because it, it gets more complex to deliver care, right? Um, and yet, yet reimbursements uh, continue to go down mm -hmm. uh, in terms of real dollars. 
So that doesn't leave a lot of money left over to, uh, you know, to, to, to fund lobbying efforts. Uh, I, I think it has to be grassroots and I'm, I'm hoping the public gets upset enough about it that they make us think and say, you know, this, this is crazy. Uh, we're the richest country in the world. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to deliver healthcare efficiently and at a reasonable cost. Now, I mean, just you mentioned politics and, and may require legislation. Um, have you thought about uh, wading into those waters yourself? No, I'd be <laughs> terrible at that. I, I'm, I, I'm too. No, no. Um, look, I, 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 I had a seat on the uh, on uh, the Dade County Medical Association. And I, I, I'll tell you, when we were there, we did actually accomplish something interesting. We did manage to put a limit on... Uh, pain and suffering uh, damages that that really helped our uh, skyrocketing uh, mal medical malpractice rates. Uh, I, I devote two chapters to the legal challenges we have in delivering healthcare. Uh, but that was one good thing. But but outside of that, I was very frustrated with the change and it's just, um, it's just not my nature. I, I, I'd rather, you know, different folks are needed for different roles. And, and I, I see my role as just bringing attention what the problems are, but I, I don't think I'd be very good in a, in a political role. And are you still, um, I, I mean, I, on their website, it says you're still practicing. So you're still, Oh uh, yeah, no, I, I had a, a full day of surgery today. It was a lighter than usual. So most of the times I'd still be operating, but I knew I was, uh, I knew I had a light day because I, I took my kids uh, for a spring break for uh, some skiing. So, um, so I'm just back and today was a light day. So this worked out fine. But uh, I, my goal is really to, to, to really be a clinician. Um, I wrote the book for the reasons I mentioned, and I started Ortho now also out of frustration, and I'm hoping that a, a larger entity can, can take it over and make it truly successful. All right. Well, uh, I appreciate you coming on, and it was fascinating talking to you about uh, all the issues, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a unique perspective that a clinician's coming out and uh, kind of looking at this this issue and, and again you can find uh his book on amazon healthcare from the trenches an insider account of the complex barriers of the u.s healthcare from providers and patients perspective um and obviously he mentioned his ortho now chain uh and uh the the badia hand and shoulder center hand to shoulder center uh dr badia is there anything else that you want to plug tell people about make sure that they are aware of well i yeah, I think it's important for accessibility. So for a long time, uh, my website is how a lot of my patients come uh, to reach out to me, but even other people, and that's just drbadia.com. It's drbadia.com. And in that uh, website, you'll also find a link for the book. So drbadiabook.com is, is in that website. Um, I'm easy to find on Google, hand surgeon in Miami, uh, pretty easy. But uh, I, I think it's important for us clinicians to be accessible to our patients. Uh, telemedicine has also been a boom and we use that a lot in ortho now. And I've, I've been using it for almost a decade in my own practice. So um, I, I think these are all innovations that, uh, and we're seeing that because of the pandemic, we're, we're seeing greater utilization by the public. And I, I hope that continues. I, I, I am uh, uh, cautiously optimistic, as you said. <laughs> All right, Dr. Badia, thank you so much. We'll include all of the links in the description of the podcast and the show notes. So uh, check those out. Uh, and Dr. Badia, have a wonderful day. It was nice to meet you and talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a wonderful day.
This podcast is brought to you by Freedom Physical Therapy Services, an independent provider of comprehensive physical and occupational services. No matter how challenging your issues, if other treatments have failed, we are determined to help you heal, starting with the very first visit. Four convenient locations in the Milwaukee area. More information at freedompt.com.